0: Well, hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Wednesday, the September the 14th, 2022. This is episode 3166. I have a rare type of interview where I actually have more than one guest on. Uh, Alex Savetky, Savetsky, uh, I have on, and he was the person that came to me and wanted to be on the show. He's the author of a book called The Uncommunist Manifesto. This is a deep dive discussion about the state of the world today, where we're heading, what could be our future, and what solutions we can find in that. And I thought it would be a great discussion. He actually, because he is big in the Bitcoin community, uh, I he approached me to be on Bitcoin Breakout. And when I heard, this is what you want to talk about, there's a little passing thing here and there about Bitcoin in this, but... It is, it is not what this episode is about. This is a geopolitical, socioeconomic discussion. And so I was like, great, well, I'll book you for that. And then I got an email from him, and it said, hey, do you want, me to, do you want to have Mark Moss on? Yes, I want to have Mark Moss on. But how does that fit in here? I, I had not actually read his book yet, and I didn't know Mark is his co-author. So that was a huge bonus to get Mark involved with this as well. So that's what we have today. We have Alex and Mark on to discuss the Uncommunist Manifesto. We're going to talk about how Marxism drives the world economic form. We're going to talk about how we got here. We're you're going to hear. At one point in this discussion, I compare what's been done to America to what's done to a patient that's going to get a bone marrow transplant. Well, how does that work? Well, if I have to do a bone marrow transplant on you. I have to destroy all your bone marrow, and I put you in a very weakened state of of no immunity. That's where a lot of your immunity comes from. And then I can graft in donor bone marrow, and hopefully it takes and it it, it makes the patient able to uh, fix whatever cancer or other problem that they had up till that point. But to do that, I have to eradicate what is. If I want to put a solution in place where the state is the nanny, the state is the answer to everything, I have to destroy... The entire immune system to statism. The immune system to statism is strong local communities. The immune system to statism is strong nuclear families. The immune system to statism, if a person has a problem, his neighbors will help. Look at America today and look at America 30, 40, 50 years ago. Look at America today with people living much closer to each other, much more stacked on top of each other, less knowledge of who their neighbors are and less concern for their neighbor. It, 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 it's, it's a stark reality. And this was a great discussion. And I've, I've talked about this before, but I've never made that analogy before. And I find that to be one of the most fascinating analogies I've ever come up with. And it wouldn't have happened without these two gentlemen. I'm, I'm deeply in debt that they were here today. I think you'll enjoy this discussion. And if it's not what you would typically listen to, you're more like, hey, how do I raise chickens? Give this one a shot. I just got an email today. I get these emails all the time. Well, Jack, I've been listening to you forever, and I really like the shows on fill-in-the-blank. And it could be on Bitcoin. It could be on entrepreneurship. It could be on permaculture. Fill-in-the-blank. I like the the expert counsel. I I listen to one or two shows a week, and this is what I listen to. And this person said, and I tuned in to your one, let's talk about everything. I didn't find the subject matter in in, in the promo compelling. I didn't find the title compelling, but it was one of the best episodes that I've ever listened to, and I've been listening to you on and off for 10 years. I I really encourage some of you, you the ones that are listening right now, well, Jack, I'm going to listen to this one. Stop. Just play it. I understand, but there's probably some other topic that you don't listen to. Give it a shot. What makes TSP special is yes, we're preparedness, yes, we're homesteading, yes, we're economics, but we—I think—we are the most broad and diverse podcast available today. I really believe. I think everybody else has their own little wheelhouse. They kind of stick into it. We go all over the place because if we're going to be a actual preparedness podcast, we can't just be beans, bullets, band-aids. We can't. Preparedness means building a resilient and non-brittle life. And anything that your life actually relies on that's ignored is a hole in your plan. And when the enemy strikes, and the enemy sometimes is just fate, it's just time. It's just occurrences. It will always infiltrate through your weakness. Anyway, before I bring on Alex and Mark, let's go ahead And here from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today is knifekits.com. Hey, you know another thing you get rid of in a society if you want everybody to look to somebody else for a solution? How to do stuff. How to do stuff. How to use tools. Well, if you go into the hobby of knife making, you'll learn a lot about how to do things. And you'll gain a certain amount of confidence, and at the same time, you can build family heirlooms. Some people make just a few knives, make some with their kids and whatever, and then they're kind of like, I did that now, and I have that skill set, and I like it, and I have these things that are now an heirloom in the family. Some are like, this is really cool, and they end up becoming hobbyist knife makers. And some even spin it into a really decent side hustle or even a full-time business, and it can all start with KnifeKits.com, where you can get your feet wet the easy way. And if you're not sure what to do, they have tons of books and DVDs, and they have everything. Full-on kit knives, you don't need much else. Pick out a few different things to go along with it, and you kind of piece it together and learn the process of fitting scales, and that's mostly what it is, to full, like, just raw materials, Damascus steel, uh, buffalo horn, mammoth tusk, like, You name it, they've got it. They also have a lot of great stuff for Kydex and other projects. Check them out today, KnifeKits.com. And remember, while it's not huge, they do a discount for members of the MSB. So if you're an MSB member and you're going to order from KnifeKits.com, do indeed get your discount. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. I say it all the time, but there's a reason. It's true. A gun without ammo is an expensive club or a barter implement. It cannot do what a gun is designed to do. It cannot put meat on the table. You can't really train with it the way that you need to, and you can't defend your home, your property, and others. You have to have ammo. You need it in bulk. You need more ammo than you think you need. So where else would you go other than BulkAmmo.com? You also get a discount of 10% if you're an MSB member. Again, Bulk Ammo's been a sponsor of the show for like a decade, folks. And whenever the renewal comes up, it's like you don't even have to talk about it. A check is in the mail. It's on the, and it's one of the times they say check in the mail, and it, it actually mean it. It actually shows up. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. With that, let's drop on into our live feed with Alex and Mark. And we are live, folks. Uh, it's my good fortune today to have with us Alex Zavecki and Mark Moss. And if Alex, if I said your last name right, I apologize there, but uh, that was my <laughs> best go at it. It's so. all so good, man. <laughs> You're good. No one can say it. Not even I can say it. So it's all good. That's why I picked it up. <laughs> uh, so anyway, just before we start here, I just want to remind the audience uh, or anybody watching this video in the future, I will never contact you for any personal information or private chat, et cetera, in the video comments just because you see my logo or my likeness does not mean it's me, and I will never ask you for private chat on WhatsApp or something like that. Please don't get scammed by uh, people that do that, because there's lots of them out there. With that, uh, Alex and Mark, thanks for being here today, and I'm going to let you all decide who goes first and things like that with responses. So can we start out with with both of you? Just give us the elevator speech of your background and how you kind of ended up where you are in the world today and what you're doing.
1: Age before beauty. Go for it. Well, I guess that's me then. Um, yeah, man. Shoot. Uh, super high-level view, I guess. Um, I'll go way back to the beginning, which is uh, my parents were I grew up in South Texas. Uh, my parents were very uh, politically active, uh, con- grassroots conservatives, um, and politics is still something discussed around our, our table today. Uh, my grandfather is a decorated World War II vet. My father flew jets in, uh, in Vietnam. And I just thought I would just grow up and go to war one day as well. It's kind of the lineage that I had. I was born into a military family at the time. Um fast so that gives you the deep background. Fast forwarding, um, right out of uh right out of high school, I started buying bank owned repos. So houses directly from the bank. They had so many of them, they just couldn't get rid of them, they were given away. So I just jumped right into um what might be considered an investing game. I uh, fixed and flipped like over a hundred properties. So I don't know if I was a real estate investor or was my business. The lines obviously are very blurred. Uh, built up multiple businesses, Fortune 500 exit, um, and uh, about 2015, I started buying Bitcoin, and I just, for the first time, had like a little bit of hope. I was like, oh, we finally have a tool that we can win, and uh, I got to tell as many people as I can about this, and so I started creating content to talk about Bitcoin specifically, and uh, I haven't shut up ever since, and so uh, here I am still today talking about it as much as I can on uh, the radio, on podcasts, on my YouTube channel. And um, and now now with the book as well. So um, that's a super high level uh, view, I guess.
2: Alex, cool. I guess it's my turn. Um, so yeah, if if I go back a little bit, so I was uh, I, w- I went to university as a as an engineer. I was I was very good with like physics and math and all that sort of stuff. And I ended up dropping out of university because I decided to um, put all my scholarship money. On the stock market, I taught myself how to trade options and warrants. Thought I was a fucking genius, made a bunch of money, um, and then along came 2007. It was actually 2007 where I lost everything, and kind of bled into 2008. And that kind of put me on the on the trajectory of trying to figure out, you know, wh- what in the flying fuck did I do um, and why <laughs> and I basically went down the whole gold silver rabbit hole. Like I'd watch things from, you know, Mike Maloney and Doug Casey and Max Kaiser and uh Gerald Celente, all the old school guys who, you know, many of them actually through Mark I've had the pleasure of actually meeting. Um and yeah, I kinda I kinda went down that rabbit hole. Um, you know, i, I I'd heard of Bitcoin in passing, I I d can't remember if it was Max Kaiser jumping up and down on a couch or some shit, but you know, I I never took it seriously. I was like, eh. Internet funny money, whatever. I'll stick with my, you know, gold and silver. And, and I did that. And, you know, I ended up kind of getting out of gold and silver right at the peak, which was really good. Um, that sort of got me out of the shit that I was in, you know, in, in the previous sort of trading debacles. And then I kind of just went on this entrepreneurial spree. Like I, I built hospitality businesses. I built some tech businesses and all this sort of stuff. And it wasn't until. Once probably yeah, twenty fifteen ish where I started getting back into Bitcoin, but not not in any significant way. Like I just had this junky friend of mine who was like, Hey bro, have you heard about this thing called Bitcoin? And the the conversation kinda of went from there. And um and it was twenty sixteen where I started you know, taking it a little bit more seriously and obviously twenty seventeen onwards, down the rabbit hole, writing, producing content, built a company around Bitcoin, um, all sorts of other things and here we are. Yeah. Similar to Mark. Just won't shut up about it. We wrote a book together and here we are on a podcast 2022 opposite ends of the world.
0: Still talking about the shit. So when I, when you first reached out to me, Alex, I was looking for people for the Bitcoin breakout. I'm going to kind of put this on both feeds, uh, because I think this is more of a, a broader topic. We're going to dig into mm-hmm. Marxism and the book that you and Mark co-authored called the Uncommunist Manifesto. Um, can we start out? And again, you guys, yeah, and we'll, we'll get it up on the screen, the side on the screen too, Mark, in, in just a bit. But, um, can you guys, you guys, again, pick who goes first, but can you start off with like just understanding Karl Marx and Marxism? I'm, I'm amazed today at the broad embrace of Marxism that I see throughout my country. I'm 50 years old. I went to school in the eighties. Uh, teachers weren't, ex- you know, exactly, you know, diehard conservatives or anything, but they really weren't thumping the Marxist Bible at you. We did mm-hmm. discuss it and talk about it. Um, I didn't see many people around me, my cohorts or anything get pulled into Marxism. And today I see it like fully embraced. And part of why I think that might be the case is the best way to sell a lie is with some truth. Um, do you guys think that there is some angle there with Marxism and why, why young people particularly so embrace it today?
2: Totally. Mark, do you want me to pick this one up or? Yeah, sure. Okay. I see you're muted anyway. So, um, all right. I, um, (laughs) for for me, it's interesting. I'm obviously a lot younger, um, you know, than, than the both of you and maybe not a lot, but you know, at least decades. So, um, I, I've, kind of grew up in, I think, probably the last generation before kind of smartphone native and all of that sort of stuff before digital native. Like, I, I still remember having no fucking phone and, you know, playtime meant going outside, not staring at a screen. And, um, you know, that sort of all transitioned uh, through my life. And, and I think, as you said, you know, the sprinkling a little bit of truth. F- for me, one thing that the Marxists and everything, everything did sort of well was they actually – observed some genuine problems like there were problems in the transition from feudal to a sort of more capitalist market-driven economy like fundamentally and during that transition there's always going to be mess there's always going to be exacerbations of like you know real inequality there's you know there's wealth transitions there's all sorts of crap so they pointed things out but as we we and I think Mark and I discussed this in the book is that they completely misdiagnosed it. And the misdiagnosis comes from a number of factors. And, you know, again, at the risk of trying to psychoanalyze uh, Marx here, it's like you've got a very, 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 very large dose of envy. Marx didn't like other people um, who could outproduce him, outcompete him and all this sort of stuff. So his whole uh, tenet was around, um, you know, kind of corralling the masses under the you know sort of auspices of things like equality, which was fundamentally inspired by the stupidity of the French Revolution, in fact, um, and he used those sorts of guises to basically bring numbers, because for the first time in history, particularly once again in the French Revolution, we saw what a peasant type uprising, what numbers would do to the higher classes, right? So he wanted to use that to take from others. And equalize uh, civilization or society by force. Now he was again accurate. He pointed out things like, oh, you know, there's there's child labour. Oh, you know, this person has more money than you. You know, this and that. Um, and basically, like, touched on some surface levels observ- surface level observations without uh, digging any deeper. So it's um it's insidious. And 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 the problem with it is, you know, when, when I me having been entrepreneurial in my life I'm very competitive. I've always had a disgust for the word equality. I've never liked it like I you know things like participation awards, that kind of crap started in my generation. Like the the teachers came up with this brilliant idea to make everyone feel warm and fuzzy by giving everyone an award so everyone feels equal and happy, right? That kind of stuff it's it's once again it's like it's first order sounds nice. Like equality sounds nice on the surface. But what you have to do to achieve it requires some deeper thinking. And as I guess we've progressed over the last couple hundred years, um, we've grown a hell of a lot softer and less critical of things. And we don't think deeper, or at least when I say we, I mean like kind of the masses, right, is the civilization has kind of geared itself towards the lowest common denominator. So when it, whether it's information, whether it's education, whether it's health, whether it's whatever, it's all geared towards scooping up the dumbest of the dumb um, and all of the information out there is kind of catered or geared towards the lowest common denominator, which by definition means it's not designed to be thought through. There's no deeper thinking. So it's just this surface level crap that people buy into. So anyway, I don't don't know if that uh, answers the question much, but I think your observation is right in the sense that, you know, it's, it's few truths sprinkled in with these you know, outrageous lies, which is effectively what Matrix Four, the movie, was—a couple little truths yeah. with this fucking Marxist agenda all throughout the movie. It was a disgrace.
0: I haven't seen the fourth one. I don't want to ruin the whole franchise. Just, for just don't do it, man. Don't do it.
2: Yeah. I swear to God, I—I I ruined everything after that. I'll, I'll never forgive myself for watching that.
0: Mark, Go, do you want to add anything? Do you want to add anything to that? I mean, it seems like one of the things that I've noticed is the worse things are for people, the more they're willing to make a bargain, even if it's a bad bargain, for it to be a little bit better.
1: Did my mic, is my mic on? Okay. Um, I want, I wanted to add a couple things to what Alex has said. I mean, he, he dug in really well. I just want to go back to a couple comments that you made when you were kind of framing it up, which is you said, uh, you know, you went to school in the eighties and you didn't really learn about, or didn't hear about communism, didn't really be a, or Marxism or whatever, socialism didn't really seem to be a thing. And I want to I want to just push back on that specifically, um, because what's happened is that it's just been rebranded. And so everybody's been living it. Everyone's been experiencing it. You probably just didn't notice it because you didn't really understand what it was, which is, I think, part of what Alex are, and I are trying to do. So uh, we really saw communism sink its teeth into the United States back in the 30s, and it really made a concerted effort and really uh uh, a strategic move in the sixties to get inside the education system. It started in the university. So, um, you know, you're growing up, you know, take going to school in the eighties, you know, through, uh, you know, elementary high school, et cetera. You probably didn't notice it as much yet, but it was, it was definitely getting its grip in the universities. And what I'd say is just a couple of things is that you didn't notice it. You didn't see it. Why does it seem to be a big deal today? But we've had it. So in the original communist manifesto book, Karl Marx lays out 10 points, of what it takes to have communism, 10 points. And so, you know, uh, there's several of these. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think seven of the 10 the United States has, and they've been around for a long time. So number two and number five of the 10 points were both created simultaneously in 1913. That's a heavy progressive or graduated income tax and establishment of a national bank. So the IRS and the Federal Reserve were both created in nineteen thirteen. So those have been around. You were living in socialism and communism, you just didn't know it.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I'm talking more of like this full embrace of Marxism itself as a thing openly as well. I, and I was I was a real small rural school, is what I'm talking about. And they were like all my teachers were like war vets or wives of war vets and stuff. So it was a it wasn't Pushed. It certainly was here. There's no
1: doubt. It it, it was, but but the point I want to make is is it was pushed. You just didn't notice it. Gotcha. Most most people didn't notice it. And the reason why is because they don't come out. So in in the original book, Karl Marx says to 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 summarize communism in one statement is the abolition of private property. So if they came out on the mountaintops in the 70s and 80s said, "Hey, we're going to abolish private property," like nobody would go for that, right? Yeah. So instead, it's the it's the proverbial you know frog in the boiling pot. So they started installing communism or socialism. Or Marxism, whatever you want to call it, and you just didn't notice it. So, uh, number three abolish rights of inheritance. They have been continually ratcheting up, uh, the inheritance tax, right? Now it's whatever, 50% on, on states over a million bucks. Like, that's insane. Um, and, uh, nationally controlled communication and transportation. The government has continued to control more and more communications, more, more and more uh transportation. So that's been ratcheted up. It's been there since the 70s and the 80s. You just didn't realize that was part of communism. And so all of this has been ratcheting tighter and tighter and tighter. Most people haven't really been aware of it. Most people have, uh, have actually been for it. Like, yeah, well, wh- if we, it wasn't for the government, what about the roads? Yeah. So they'll say, well, we'll control the means of transportation. So um, we've been seeing this more and more redistribute the uh, population, right? So all these things have been happening, free and public education, number 10. So they've been happening. People want, wanted it, welcomed it. And finally, when the last piece is ready to be installed, which is the you'll own nothing, be happy part, which is abolish private property. Now people are like, what the heck? But they've already got nine of the 10 uh, um, planks in place.
2: Mm-hmm. I want I want to just say something quickly about the schooling system which um which I guess marxism was always going to uh spread through the schooling system because schooling systems in in general they're marxist by nature like if you think about the first people to really push uh broad-based government schooling was the jacobin leftists uh in France like the the, the free education for all was out, it came out of the French Revolution and was pushed by Marx uh, later. It was it was a communist agenda to school everybody, and you know they use the word education, but that's horseshit because education is something that happens all of the time. From from the moment a child is born onwards, they are being educated. They're learning something. That that is like that the brain is a sponge and it's a learning machine. That's what it does now. Directed education is schooling and government directed education is like indoctrination, really. Um, and, and that's what these public schooling systems are. And I think that, you know, cause some people are going to, you know, go out there and say, you know, it's, it's a conspiracy that the Marxists sort of went through the educational system. But whether it's a conspiracy or not, that is the point of contact for Marxism with respect to civilization because that's there. That was and always will be their entry point is public schooling. By definition is Marxist. There, There is no such thing like in a in a in a capitalist, organic, free market environment. There is no fucking public schooling. There's private schooling. And, you know, a commercial enterprise uh, would have to orient itself to make profit and not be communal. Otherwise, it would go bankrupt. Um, so, you know, the communist schools would quickly disappear because they wouldn't survive. So, so I, I think this is all once again a function of the fact that, I mean, what is think, it, what point is number eight, eight? I think in the ten points um, on the on the original Communist Manifesto, it is you know the public schooling systems is is a Marxist doctrine.
0: Yeah, I think that all goes back to I've always said that the human brain is a computer. It's a self-learning computer and. The less code in a computer, the more you can direct the code long term if it's a self-learning computer. So the earlier you get the hold of a child and start planning ideas in their brain, the more you can set forward how that child will self-program as they transition into adulthood, if they even do. Because somewhere along the way in all of this, we created this magical fake world of adolescence, like this in-between phase. Like if you think back a couple hundred years, you were never an adolescent. You were a boy. And it, your job was to become a man in early as life as you can. And now we've taken adolescence from this like kind of middle teenager thing to like spans some of these people 30 years and they are still living as adolescents. And they talk about doing laundry as adulting. And I think that when you weaken a society's mind like that, then it becomes susceptible to the siren song that is the the promise of socialism that has never been successfully delivered ever in the history of mankind because it wasn't real socialism.
2: Dude, thank you so much for saying that because that's something, you know, Mark and I have both been harping on it, but for me it's been a big, big, big piece. I'm actually writing a piece now uh called, you know, Bitcoin is Responsibility Go-Up Technology. Like, you know, fuck this number, go-up technology. It's like Responsibility Go-Up Technology, and it actually transforms us into adults because the definition of an adult is an individual who is responsible for the decisions that they make. And if you look at all of these kind of leftist ideologies, whether it's, you know, the the, the liberal end, the socialist and all the, you know, the extreme communist end, they're all about removing agency from the individual because somehow the collective or this magical entity called the state can make decisions on behalf of everyone better somehow, which is complete fucking stupidity, number one. And the the... Like, not not only is it false in the beginning, and, and, and here's the thing, I, I guess it's similar to what you said in the at, at the start. It's like there are genuinely dumb people out there that if they're not told what to do, you know, they'll kill themselves or something will go wrong, right? Um, but the thing is, when you, like, instead of those people being helped voluntarily by, you know, the community or by their family or extended family or, you know, private charity or tithing or something like that, what happens is the state extends that kind of uh that uh, almost derogatory helping hand uh to everybody and then everyone starts to devolve their behavior so they basically infantilize they 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 regress they move from adulthood and they they go into adolescence and they basically become the um the lemmings that are on the movie wally right that they're just completely dependent Overgrown children that are sucking off the teat of, uh, you know, an institution that is supposed to give them everything they want um, without them having to actually work for it, and and it's truly a disgusting thing. There's nothing worse than an overgrown child. It's fucking disgusting, and we we are surrounded by these people. When I think like I, I read, um, I know a lot of people don't like Rockefeller, for example, but I read his biography, and it was fantastic. This son of a bitch was like he he was. He came from nothing, genuinely. His dad was just a con artist, and he came from nothing and built an entire fucking empire from the age of 18. And he built it all up. He he was he was like a, a hard worker, and he became a man at a young age. Early family, the, the whole lot. And when I thought about that, I was like listening to like the, the the degree of business and maturity that he had, and then you know the the stage of life that he was at was like. 26 <laughs> like he's already running this like you know oil empire and i thought you know, what are 26 year olds doing today <laughs> complaining about how hard as he said it's like adulting is like doing the laundry it's too hard bro oh my next subscription isn't working
0: and i think part of this whole implementation is one that that prolonged adolescence which it shouldn't even be a thing and two is the destruction of community because community is where that private assistance comes from so I think back, again, to being a kid in the 80s, central Pennsylvania, Town, USA. Every neighborhood had a name, even if it wasn't another town. And if you went a mile down the road, it was another town, borough, township, something like that. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew everybody. If you didn't know somebody, you knew somebody that knew that person. If somebody had a problem, people showed up to fix it. There were people in the community that if you had a problem and you didn't know who to go to, they'd make a phone call and people would show up and help you. And there was still the remnant of a strong nuclear family. And then I watched, and I agree with you, you kind of came up in the nineties and that was kind of like, I think there's a documentary I call like a last great generation, you know, and like you still had that freedom and you still had that initiative. You could still go out and do things. And like the only thing you were really worried about would somebody tell your grandpa before you got home and you get your ass whooped. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you did, something. because across those, the grandparent internet and the parent internet of the the eighties and seventies, they would just make a couple of phone calls and you'd be in trouble before you got home. But that taught you to like, be more innovative and get away with things. And now we have, Like, people living closer together than ever before. We've stacked people into multiplex apartments, triplexes, tighter and tighter subdivisions, but they don't know anybody. You say, like, well, who lives next door to you? They don't know, right? They never talk to them. Maybe they do this when they get the mail at the same time or something, but that's it. And by eradicating that, they've paved the way to make the state, the support system mm-hmm, more than mm-hmm. ever before because you've wiped out the natural innate support system of humankind. Totally, totally. The, the, there's something – so I, I was walking through uh, Berlin with my, with
2: my girlfriend and something I mentioned was um, that socialists and communists, funny enough, like people who believe in that ideology – they and the reason we're talking about this was funny because we walked past a little cafe which was a communist cafe and on the front they had this like you know shirt which is COVID deniers not not um welcome here and I was like fuck you I've got my little COVID you know shaming shirt that I'm gonna go walk in there with tomorrow but um the um you know uh, she she was just asking me she's like you know what why why are they they the people who don't um who who are conforming she goes like she's from Dominican Republic and you know she knows about Cuba and all this sort of stuff so she kind of like grew up in you know quasi-communism uh where she lived and she's like she said usually the communists and socialists are ones that are anti-authoritarian and I'm like yeah it's like it's so weird how something has like transformed because they used to be the rebels and now it's like they they like something transformed and and I I was trying to like pin it on something and I want to do some more thinking on this but what's interesting is that and this is the fantasy of communism and socialism is that they think that that they're against all authority. So they try and abolish natural authority and natural hierarchy and natural connections. And in doing so, they leave a vacuum and that vacuum is filled by the Stalin's of the world, by the Lenin's of the world, by the Mao Zedong's of the world or something else, right? It's you, you break down those natural emergent. So, so every time there is a vacuum, Something will fill it. And and this is, once again, as you said, you, there's a vacuum of connection. The state fills it. There's a vacuum of uh, local support. The state fills it. There's a vacuum of authority. The state fills it. Someone's going to come and fill that. And this is why something like communism, socialism, like I, I honestly still believe that there are some people who are communist socialist leaning who genuinely have a good heart, but they're just fucking completely brainwashed. And they think that some sort of utopia is possible. but They just don't realize that you just can't remove something like authority or grassroots connection and things like that. So...
1: And, and, and that goes on... back
2: to, that goes back to
1: the education, the dummy down of the people, right? And so what happens is, um, you know, people who are blind, for example, they really develop their other senses. They can hear much better. They can smell much better, right? Uh, but the opposite is also true. When you have a crutch that you can lean on, then your senses, uh, fade. I know for myself, I mean, I've spent most of my life out in the mountains and out in the deserts and I have this really amazing sense of, uh, where I'm at, direction, et cetera. But now, like I drive with my ways on all the time because it tells me where all the police are on the road. So I have this thing on all the time and like, man, like I've lost my ability to navigate like I used to. And that's just like a small example. And so what we've seen is, you know, to the points you were making earlier, I mean, you know, boys at 14 used to be men. And now today, because of all these crutches that we give them, they don't. We continue to give more and more to the government, you know, to the state the nanny state, take my education, take my health care, take my retirement, you know, uh, all these things. And so we just become weak. And, and it's just a process. If you go to other nations, which might have more of a open kind of a Marxist communist type government, you know, take Mexico, for example, uh, but they don't have the money printer. They don't have the fiat money system. And so the reality is most of their country is kind of left to fend for themselves. They don't have this welfare state. And so you don't see people, dependent on the government because they can't be there is no government handouts and so all the people are working all the people are industrious in mexico in el salvador in central america i'm sure other parts of the world as well 14 year olds are still boys i mean i'm I'm sorry 14 year olds are still men (laughs) uh it's just in the in america because of the crush that they've been given specifically because of the money system um it really enables that to happen um, so that's, that's, uh, back to, you know, number five, establishing the, the, uh, national bank. Let's create a bunch of money. Let's create a bunch of, uh, subservient people and make them dependent on each other or on us, I should say.
0: No, you're completely right. I mean, when you make that comment about like Central American countries and, and Mexico, when, in, in the 1990s, I spent, uh, a couple of years in Panama, but I spent, uh, did a six month deployment into Honduras. And I mean, rural, nowhere Honduras. There was a kid that came in our, our camp every day and shot boots. That kid was a hustler. That kid made probably more money than his parents did working on our, you know, we would hire guys to work on road crews and stuff like that as well and do some of the things that we didn't have enough soldiers to do. And that kid, he was probably 10 and he act, I mean, he conducted himself like you would expect, not like you see, like you would expect a 16 year old because they had no choice and you know for that kid to get into that position and be able to be the kid that came into the camp every day i don't know how many other kids he had fight and beat off to be able to do that but you know one way or another did it now both of you have kind of referred to like this vacuum and then this stuff flows into it i find that interesting because when uh alec was talking the the term i wrote down in my notes here was bone marrow and it makes me think of like when you want to treat a patient with a bone marrow transplant the very first thing they do is they eradicate all, they irradiate all your bone marrow. They create a vacuum and then they you know, graft in this new bone marrow. And I, I look at society and I kind of feel like that's, and I want to transition to talking about the world economic forum and how Marxist ideology drives that. Um, but that's kind of what I see is like we first, th- this last 70, 80 years wasn't so much about implementation as it was about eradication of the core values that, that acted as the when you in, in permaculture, when we don't want weeds to grow, we plant other plants and we, we gild those plants together. And that prevents the invasion of the weeds. So if you want to get weeds in the garden, first you eradicate all the companion plantings and then the weeds come. And I feel like that's what what's been done here is we've eradicated the values and the morals, the responsibility, the cohesion, the culture, everything that existed. And now there's a vacuum and it's very easy for this kind of transplant to take place.
2: I was trying to unmute myself. That was so well put. Honestly, that is, that is such a good point is like, and you look at it as, I mean, what, what kind of philosophies came out the back end again of the, the French revolution. It was all deconstructionist stuff. It was all a, an attempt to discredit to ignore, to disseminate, to destroy the old. All of the institutions that came before, whether it was church, whether it was a patriarchy, whether it was the monarchy, whether it was whatever, like all of that stuff had to be destroyed and removed because apparently, according to Marx, uh, the history of all of humanity was oppressor and oppressed, right? And we must remove the oppressors. And who are the oppressors? Anyone that I say they are, Um and, 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 and that like, that, that's a really good point because what happens is like when you destroy, like, when we think about money, you know, m- money is, you know, this sort of, uh, representative capital, um, of, you know, what's sort of come before the value, the product of one's labor, you know, the, the value that they've sort of added and put into society. Um, you know, we, we have multiple forms of capital. We have intellectual capital, the stuff that we've learned. We have social capital, you know, civilizational capital, uh, capital of the buildings and the things and stuff that we've built. Um, if we had to kind of destroy that uh, every single generation, we'd still be throwing rocks at each other. Like, you know, we, we sort of each generation builds on the prior generation. And the thing is, when let's just do a thought experiment. If we didn't build on the prior generation, we kept kind of uh, repeating, the first couple things that we do, the first ideas that we would come up with are probably going to be dumb ideas by nature. So by removing thousands of years, by eradicating thousands of years worth of thinking and morality and institutions and patriarchy and hierarchies and all this sort of things which g- generally emerge... Sure, there might have been some stuff that was stultified, some stuff that needed adaptation, evolution, and you know, change or whatever. But by eradicating everything, the first ideas that have come to us are pretty fucking dumb ideas. Which is, let me just tell everyone what to do. Um, and once again, whether that's a Stalin or a Lenin or a Marx or whatever, it's, it's it's that.
1: Yeah, and there and there's a couple things also in there. I mean, one back to the hierarchies. And so, um, you know, in in our book, we talk about th- how these hierarchies work, how it's natural, how it's emergent, how it's built off of merit, so meritocracies, things like that. And so you see this in all areas of life. This happens, and it's because we're not all equal. We're all different. We're better and worse in all different types of areas. Um, So I might be better in one area, and you might be better in another area. So we have all these hierarchies. And so when they want to try to establish them, and most of what they want to do goes against what human intention or human motivations or human incentives want, Human action, as we would say in Austrian economics, but um, they work against that human motivation of these natural hierarchies, but you can't get rid of them and so you still end up with someone at the top trying to rule everything, so we'll just make most of the people poor and miserable, and then just a few of us can stay at the top and The other thing is uh, going back to kind of this fourth this fourth turning or this generational theory where you have the the hard times create the strong men. All around to the weak men create hard times. Well, uh, socialism creates enormously hard times, incredibly hard times, as we've seen through the Bolshevik Revolution and Hitler's Germany and Mao's revolution and countless other examples. Um, And that hard time creates uh, strong men to rise up and those strong men rise up in that vacuum. That's where Hitler rose up. That's where these guys rose up and they they raise up in that vacuum. They suck in that leadership. And so uh, when you try to get away from it, it makes times extremely horrible. Someone's going to rise up and take that. And uh, history shows it's typically been people with very bad ideas.
0: And and I think one of the things that's rising up and, and we think of these people as idiots. And I think that's a huge mistake. People that are psychopaths around the world are not idiots. Right. I mean, people that are able to pull all of this off are not dumb. They may look like they have dumb ideas that could be a head fake or just because the ideas are dumb, but they're selling them anyway. But the W.E.F. is probably, in my opinion, one of the greatest threats to the world today. And and I just see this all funneling in and through that to where you're basically getting um, a, a twisted form of so-called capitalism, like an incentivized to do what we say capitalism. Uh, through the WEF, and then I see no matter what political clown they put up as being different, they're all tied in through there. Even the, the people that are sat like, I'm a Bitcoiner, and then two weeks later they're at WEF, like what's his name, Suarez from uh, from Miami, right? Talks real well, sounds real good. Two weeks later he's at the WEF. How do you guys see the WEF playing into the, the concept of Marxism and this entire thing?
1: I, I think it's, it, it, it's Marxism. It's just, you have to understand that Marxism has gone through several rebrandings. And so I think that's why it's important to kind of go back to the origins. So you can kind of understand it. And so it's just been rebranded and, and, and Alex has said, you know, that, uh, Klaus Schwab could be the reincarnation of Marx. And so it's just this, this rebranding, but back to one of the things that you said there. Um, they could be the biggest threat. Well, I believe. They are. Um, I believe that's you know pretty easy to see. That's uh, quantitatively we can see because of the policies they are put into place. He talks about you know their goal of getting 10,000 people in all these different governments and how they've already achieved that with thousands of people through across the government. So they're they're actively subverting the will or or planting these people to turn the tides and and they're they're on the open and saying it's it's not any it's not hidden. Uh, they they have them all listed their pictures on the website. But uh, one of the things that you said is trying to change capitalism, and so that's something that he's open. Uh, Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum, the the WEF, is openly saying he wants to turn capitalism into what he calls stakeholder capitalism. And stakeholder capitalism is basically, instead of shareholders, which own the company, private equity, you know, they they own the equity of the company, again, abolition of private property, instead of having shareholders, you would have stakeholders. And who are the stakeholders? Well, the stakeholders are the people who would have the stake in the company and the actions or the... um, or um, that would have a stake in the company, and who are they per his plan? Well, it's not super laid out, but basically the companies, the organizations, and the people in the WEF become the stakeholders of all the companies, which means – they own nothing. I mean, sorry, they own everything and you own nothing. And so that's the goal. Uh, he calls it stakeholder capitalism. You still leave that kind of capital, capitalism world in, uh, word in there. But the reality is his plan of what that is, is that everybody, the organizations and the people inside the WEF actually own everything. We're just renters and we own nothing. So, uh, super dangerous. Uh, it's out in your face. You know, Mark said, again, I, I said earlier, uh, if I summed up communism in one statement, it's abolition of private property. They say, you know, own nothing, be happy. And so we see the same things, same ideas over and it's super dangerous.
0: Yeah. I, when I, when I think of all this, I go back to 15, 20 years ago and starting to see articles come up that made the case for this in a totally different way that If you're not thinking, it sounds like a good idea. Like, I remember reading this article about how we should lease everything, you know, nothing. Right. And it was made from the the concept of, like, let's look at things people buy that wear out like carpet. So you buy your carpet. It comes into your house. Ten years later, it smells like dog. You have it tore out. You have new flooring put in of some kind. Well, who's responsible for the carpet? Well, the homeowner is. And their, their, their value proposition was, well, if the people that made the carpet or installed the carpet were responsible for the carpet, then maybe it wouldn't end up in a landfill. Maybe they would start building carpet that was, you know, refreshable or that had some purpose after it was removed because they would be responsible for it as though they wouldn't just throw it away too. Like is that the, why does the homeowner throw it away? Because it's the most expedient option at the time. And, and so I've seen that type of, Case being made that you're better off known owning things, not owning things for like 20 years openly, but always painted with a different brush.
2: It's, I think it's, it's another it's, case of, uh, things, you know, truths that, um, c- cause there is sometimes like I, I've lived for a while trying to own as little as possible. Um, and not because I believe in the WEF agenda, but because I don't like, hanging on to shit um in in fact i went through a quite a purge in my in my late 20s and i just dumped everything and i felt so fucking good i can't even explain to you like i got rid of cars motorbikes fucking clothes and all sorts of shit and i kind of you know minimized my life down to like two suitcases and a very minimalist um uh actually you know what Even the, the shit, I was renting a house and I convinced the landlord to fucking buy everything. So, you know, I just paid them an extra, uh, rental amount per month. And it was just, I just felt so light. So so there is a, there is an angle in there. The problem with it is that, um, I, I actually think a lot of the early writings around that sort of stuff came from people who were trying to like, you know, be life hackers and stuff like that. The issue is when, this stuff is taken on by some form of institution and it's then tried to, like it's attempted to be enforced on people. Right. And, and that's the thing. Like if you want to own a house and do something by all means, like the, the landlord that I was renting off had to fucking own the house and had to own the furniture in there. Like, and I was happy to rent it off her because I didn't want to bear the burden of that stuff. Um, I much preferred instead of buying a house, I wanted, um, I wanted to buy more Bitcoin. That was my whole MO. So that's why I was kind of lightening my load. I, I moved everything. And, and for me, like, you know, I went through this phase of trying to understand, like, you know, property is that which you can most easily hold, protect, and kind of, you know, secure under your domain. And everything seemed so uh shit in comparison to Bitcoin. So I kind of, like, traded everything out. And the only thing I basically owned was Bitcoin and two suitcases, as I said. So th- there is... I think it's just another case of that sort of thinking. And to kind of come back to your point about the WEF and, you know, them being dangerous and all this sort of stuff, I think – I don't think they're dangerous because they're honestly so um, competent. So I, I would push back on that. I think they're dangerous because there's such a vacuum of competence. Um, and what, what sort of happened is that the kind of people like – I would say one of the the two biggest things that destroyed the world were democracy and central banking right they're they're the two fucking ugliest creatures uh, in the history of humanity is that democracy has given people this idea that they can have their hand in everyone else's pocket um, and that some sort of suffrage or you know broad based voting which is really a you know a an attempt to Enforce what you believe should be done with other people's resources. It's so fucking, it's such a retarded ideology. Um, that, that kind of stuff has kind of slowly by slowly given us a world where power is concentrated in the hands of, um, representatives who are effectively popularity contest winners. That's really all politicians are. It's like who can promise the most? Who can, you know, tell you that? You know, if one person says five plus five is 10, the other one will say, well, you know, in my government, five plus five will equal 11 because I'm, you know, the leader. And the next person will say, well, in my government, five plus five wow. will equal 13, you okay. know, like and, you know, they'll, they'll sort of keep bullshitting themselves out. Right. And and the lemmings will believe that shit because the whole goal of democracy is to bitch and scream and yell enough so that your group gets the is the net receiver of the redistribution of wealth. And in that sort of a modality, like, I, I don't believe anything other than an institution like the World Economic Forum would emerge from that because the underlying, uh, train tracks are pointed in that direction. Sure. We, we don't, like, I, I don't, yes, there is sort of conspiracism sort of pushing behind the curtains and all that sort of stuff, but I, I kind of look at the meta argument, which is, of course there is. Of course. When, when, when the entire economic and social game that we're playing is a fucking fantasy, where the product of our labor doesn't actually reflect, you know, the money, where the money is just fucking conjured up out of thin air, where, you know, politics is basically a bunch of promise making and pretending that, you know, if, if only I tell the oil price to come down, then maybe it'll come down, you know, where economics is animal spirits and all this sort of shit. Of course we're gonna have these imaginary organizations which kind of fill the power vacuum um, and and take over. Um, it it's perfectly fucking logical. Um so, so they're dangerous insofar as um, they've been able to um, they've been able to kind of get to that stage. Yeah. Um, but they're I, I don't give them that credence because they're so fucking capable. It's once again it's it's the vacuum point that you made earlier. They've just yeah, filled the Here's
0: vacuum. why I say they're so dangerous. These are the these are their partners. These are global corporations. These are the A's for those that are watching the video. These are just the A's and you can keep going down. This is again, I'm still scrolling. So imagine that we were gonna play chess and you're like, you know, I I I think I can beat Jack in chess. He, he he's not that great. And so, yeah, you know, either one of you step up to the board and we play chess. But what if I get to set the board up? I get to play the I get to play both sides for the first seventy percent of the game, and I set that board up to we're already three moves from checkmate. And now you get to play against me. It doesn't matter if I'm a better chess player or not at that point. And when I look at the positioning that they have, because that's just the corporate side, because they do the, the corporations or the politicians run things. And the answer is yes. Right. And they've, they've got a lot of positioning done. I even saw the orange man himself with Klaus Schwab this year saying, what a great job he's done. And so when I see that level of positioning and the population still believing they have some magical choice they can make with a ballot box, I see them as and I agree with you, Mark, they probably are the biggest threat. The only reason I won't say they are the biggest threat. I'm not clairvoyant for all I know, there's a dinosaur killing level comet on the way in tomorrow. I mean, there's the there's the exception. So you, you see what I'm saying? The the positioning these people have done is well, it's it's incredibly yeah, yeah. dangerous. And the, the other thing that plays into this. Uh, and this, this comes from uh, a philosopher, writer, Bonhoeffer in Germany going into to, to Nazi Germany times, uh, the theory of stupidity. And that's what creates this vacuum. And so that when the people are made stupid, they're actually more dangerous than people who have been made violent
2: because you can use
0: violence to suppress violence, but it's very difficult to suppress stupidity. And in, in, in Bonhoeffer's work, he was very clear. I don't mean intellectually slow. I mean, stupid as in they are willing to accept ideology like, oh, this 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 magical clot shot works, even though everything says it doesn't. And we need to force everybody else to do it, too. Things like that. And when I look at how, like when I when I dug into that theory, I looked out and said, man, it's everywhere. And now when I look at it, I'm like, oh, my God, I thought it was everywhere. Like that is the vacuum, this this mass dumbing down of society that doesn't necessarily mean that. They're, they're, again, intellectually slow. It means that they are stupid in behavior and willing to defend that stupidity from a, a, a weird type of New World tribalism. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. They're, they're the people that, that are called the Lemmings that we know as the NPCs. It's literally fucking with drowning in those. Mark, you were going to say something.
1: I, I wanted to go back to something that you had said earlier. Um, and I think this is a big, big piece because like you're trying to kind of understand who, the, maybe potentially the biggest threat is, right? So who are they? What are they thinking? And so what we see from them, their line of thinking um, is that, you know, people are stupid, uh, people are dumb. And so we need to tell them what to do, right? And so we we also see that to the point that you made that maybe... Um, uh, violent people are easier to control so there's this um, they want people to be very predictable they want to be able to, to control them they want to be able to model people and so they want to be able to put us on a spreadsheet and just kind of lump us all together and think this is the way it'll go and so we see this uh it's very pervasive in economics so Keynesian economics kind of believes that um we need to have a money that inflates because if the money doesn't lose value then people will hoard it and we need to incentivize people to spend. So, uh, we need to have this money that in- incentivize people to spend. Like, really? Like, people need to be incentivized to spend? Like, people, all they want to do is spend. Like, there's no incentive needed there, right? So that's like uh, absurdity. And then, and then the example you were using earlier about the carpet, right? And so, uh, um, maybe if the carpet company, um, was responsible for the carpet, they'd f- find a way to be more efficient. Really? All businesses are trying to make more profit. All businesses, in order to make more profit, try to figure out how to be more efficient by nature. This is emergent. We talk about it in the book and how this capitalism process is not a political modality. that is just emergent order. We're As humans, we're, we, we have ingenuity, and we're always trying to become more efficient with our scarce resources. And so uh, my business, the scorecard of my business, how well I do in the marketplace, my bank account, tells the market how efficient I am with my resources. And my goal is always to become more efficient. So uh, this whole stakeholder capitalism, where well maybe if the carpet company managed it would be more efficient. Oh look, we don't need that incentive. We're already there. So I think I think it's pretty important to kind of understand where they're coming from and how that how that really misses the mark.
0: I think we need to be clear on defining what they mean when they use a word. So incentivized to spend, like I imagine both of you bought food in the last couple of weeks, and you were incentivized to spend money on food because you were hungry. Right. Or you knew that you would be or maybe you wanted a nice car. So you incentivized to spend and buy a car because you needed a mode of transportation or like I bought a house and I was incentivized to spend because I needed a place to live. When they say incentivized to spend, they mean irrational, continuous spending because our entire system has been developed on the concept of if we don't grow, it's bad like if, if GDP is not higher, it's back to the point where we'll literally change how we calculate GDP so we can say it grew even if it didn't. And so when they say spending, what they're talking about is massive amounts of spending all the time and always more. And I agree with you. Human beings do not need a government incentive or a corporatocracy or oligarchy-driven incentive or a central bank-driven incentive to spend money on needs and true wants the incentive is to get you to spend money on things you don't really need and you don't really want because you feel compelled to spend. And I think it works at the business level to have an inflationary currency to get businesses to spend, right? I don't think it works, though, on the average Karen or Ken because they're not thinking that way when they go out and buy something. They just have money, it's burning a hole in their hand, and they need to get rid of it, and they don't understand. They have economic literacy, or they wouldn't be doing that. So I think it sort of kind of works, but – It's also just a talking point that that is designed to seduce people into accepting that this is the way it needs to be, that it wouldn't work if we did it any other way. Um, I look at Bitcoin and I see like a totally different form of of, of monetary instrument than I've I've seen in history of mankind is that if I had to describe it as a monetary instrument, not as just a thing, I would describe it as cap and fractionalize. So that there's always enough mm-hmm. units, but there's never mm-hmm. more. Totally. Like it, it doesn't really matter that we're going to mine the last Bitcoin in 2050 or whatever, 2150 or whatever it is. It doesn't really matter. The fact that we already know the total quantity has already established that cap. Yes. It's just a matter of time until you get there. And then that fractionalization, there's like, because it's, it's 21 million Bitcoin, but it's like, I think it's 21 quadrillion Satoshis. So that's that's enough for society to function. If we're not trying to grow for the sake of growth.
2: Yeah, the, the artificial incentives is an interesting thing. It's like whenever you have to incentivize something artificially, um you you you're gonna have uh weird kind of downstream effects, right? Like so if if I'm if I don't feel like eating because I feel unwell. That's my body telling me that I don't need to stuff food in here. I need to give my digestive system a rest and I need to, you know, naturally rebalance. So, so we have these natural incentive, disincentive mechanisms in all natural systems, the human body, the economy and all this sort of stuff. When we start to try and artificially induce incentives, as you said, like there's no need to artificially induce someone to fucking eat. Like, they're gonna go and eat, but you definitely need to artificially induce someone to go and buy another car, buy another fucking house, buy another stereo, buy another thing that they don't need, etc., etc., etc. Like that—that's that's an artificial induction, and that once again is yeah, it, it's much easier done when the the money's broken and all that sort of stuff. But I, I want to say one last thing about the WEF is um just I guess on the um on the biggest threat so. The, I think, and I still stand by this, is that, you know, psychopaths, yes, um, psychopaths are really uh, short-term intelligent um, and short-term opportunistic, but I think they are long-term the dumbest fucks on the face of the planet and also the weakest. So when I think about competition, if I want to beat you at something, I don't want to beat you with your hands tied behind your back. Like if we're going to go and have a boxing match and you know you're going to have your feet tied together or something like that i didn't like that's a fake fucking win like yeah. a real win and th- th- this is what i love about like the ancients and the the old school aristocracy was that there was like a there was a nobility and a class in competing with someone and defeating them because you were better not because you cheated and you look at this kind of modern WEF approach it's it's an approach to win by cheating. It's the only way they can win because they are fundamentally a subordinate fucking class of human. They're, they're fucking parasitic, psychopathic pieces of turd and they cannot compete with any of us on the market. They cannot compete with us. So they have to cheat in order to beat us. So it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a, it's a fake victory. It's like anti-stoic, anti-moral, anti-christian, anti, you know, any full philosophy or religion that has ever come up throughout history has, you know, tried to coach people into thinking about like, you know, what, what being the best version of yourself is. And this kind of modern wef type philosophy is about short term opportunistic wins at the expense of someone else through cheating as much as you possibly can, um, which is a really empty, nihilistic, pathetic form of life. And this is why like, I I don't think they're intelligent. I don't think they're strong. I don't like, I think they're all like basically these fucking eggshells walking around that have just filled the vacuum and they, they will lose because they're, they're up against math. They're up against, um, energy. (laughs) They're up against time. They're up against entropy and they're up against people like fucking us who will fucking beat them. Even when the 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 odds and everything is stacked against us, we have time and entropy on our side. Like they have to hold together these institutions, which are taped and band-aided together, um, and entropy will fucking tear them down because I don't care as much as you want to believe, you know, politics will turn two plus two into five. When it comes time to pay the piper, it equals four. And we're on the side of four and they're on the side of five. And it just, you know, we, we win in the end.
1: One thing I want to add into that just about the cheating and whatnot, and actually something that you had said earlier, and you kind of showed the page from the WEF and you showed all the organizations that are involved with that. You just showed the A's and how, how deep that was. And then going back to this stakeholder capitalism thing and then, they'll, you know, own nothing to be happy. And so all of this the cheating that Alex is talking about, the the list of the A's of the people that are trying to take over the stakeholder capitalism, all of that comes from the fiat money system or the central bank, right? So, um, if, if you look at an org chart at the very top of the entire pile is the BIS, which almost nobody knows anything about the bank of international settlements, right? And then below that you kind of have them, the IMF. And then below that you kind of have the NGOs, the WEF, et cetera. And so through the money printer, it enables all this. So, um, Two things. One, through the money printer, um, they choose who to give the money to and who not to. right? And so they want to give the money to the companies that align with them, that will prove to hold up their ideologies, that will build the future they want, not what the public wants through free markets. Um, Mark Carney, who's arguably one of the most influential people in the entire world, um, said that companies that don't go along with their plans for ESG will be, quote, economic roadkill, meaning they just won't get any funding and they're just going to die out. Um, and so that's like the cheating, and that's what enables all of this to happen at the end of the day, which, again, kind of goes back to uh, getting, getting rid of that, 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 that pain yeah, point.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think when we think about incentivized spending, again, we to what kind and to what end. So a lot of times, it's not so much an incentivized spending, but I, I would say then do it without fiat would be a challenge. So if I look at something like you have a background in real estate, Mark, you were more of a, fl- a property flipper, but... Uh, I have some experience with acting as a landlord and holding property and you don't really make a lot of money renting a property and it's kind of a pain in the ass. So why would you do it? Because I get the money for almost nothing to finance the property. And eventually if I do it a couple of times, I can get the money for nothing damn near in real cost. Zero. I can shelter the shit out of taxation. I can dispose of income inside there. I can build underlying equity and I can outsource all the shit to somebody else over time. Now, again, do that without fiat. Or if I want to incentivize farmers to grow grains that can be commoditized, siloed, taxed, quantified, then I can say, if you grow this particular grain at this particular time in this particular way, we'll pay X amount per ton in addition to what you get by the market. And I would say, again, then, do that without fiat. Those things are not necessarily what the the landlord or the farmer is doing in of itself bad, But the mechanism by which the manipulation occurs, if you remove fiat, if you went to a hard monetary instrument, those things become impossible to manipulate and control. And I think one of the interesting things- I
1: would, I would, I would push back on that a little bit. Okay, go ahead. Uh, so the subsidies, uh, for sure, right? So subsidizing farmers to grow corn when we don't need friggin' corn and yeah. mandating that then, uh, you know, the refineries increase their, um, ethanol blend wall from 10% to 15%. Like that's all fake. That's all creating artificial and that wouldn't be possible without the fiat to your point. But yeah. as far as like a real estate situation, uh, before there was a fiat money system, people saved money and did loans.
0: No, I agree always, with that. I'm always not talking be loans about
1: out there. So even just to in be a,
0: clear, Mark, Mark, real quick, just to be clear, I'm not talking about owning property. I'm not I know, talking about, about, I
1: about getting the getting the loan to buy the property, so then you can stuff have the have the no, no, no. money and the taxes. Right.
0: I'm talking about setting up the entire system so that I can hold 20 properties. I can have massive cash flow out of it. And I, could, well, pay you I, I
1: could still do that on a hard money system, though, is the point that I'm making. So uh, somebody is always going to save more than they um spend. Right? We're going to produce yeah. more than we consume. Somebody's going to do that. Yeah. And then with that savings, they'll redeploy that capital. So when people come with good ideas, like, hey, I have this good idea. I'll pay you 10% on your money or 20% or 50% or whatever that number is. People will always be willing to loan that money out. So, hey, I have this idea. You have a bunch of money. You've produced more than you've consumed. You've saved. Which has Mm -hmm. been happening for all of eternity. You've saved, you don't know what to do with it. Well, I have these ideas. Let me go do this thing. I'm going to go buy these properties, fix them up. I'm going to rent them out. I'm going to make you know all this money. I'll pay you 10%. You're always going to be willing to loan money in those times. So we've had that forever. So I would still be able to. I believe there's there would still be credit markets. I believe I would still be able to buy 10 houses if I wanted, as long as I could find a good return. If the market bared that, if it wasn't obviously fake and manipulated, and there was people that had savings would would want to loan that out.
0: But you wouldn't be doing it with, with two, two and a half percent terms, right? Well, the market would be able to shelter income. Now, I'm for no taxes at all. But if we had a tax-based system like we did, you wouldn't be able to shelter your income inside of there the way it's done right now. That system wouldn't have been incentivized that way. Sure, oh, the system, right.
1: the, the, for sure, the system is super manipulated and it's distorted, as yeah. right I was right. saying. Anytime you create artificial um, incentives, then you create all types of distortions and manipulations in the market. So that, that's that's true, of course.
0: Yeah, so I'm talking the cheap money and then the tax structure and everything combined. I completely agree with you, dude, that if if we got rid of fiat and there was hard money, there would be a, a, an equivalent to a mortgage or a real estate investor. Of course there would. It would just look a hell of a lot different. Sure. I wouldn't be walking in and going, I want this property, getting it for zero money down no and the reason why, the reason is, why that's
1: so important, and 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 this kind of jumps out a little bit out of the book, but I just will hit this point for everybody listening. Uh, the reason why that's so important, and and I think most people probably listen to this, understand that price fixing is a horrible idea. Uh, it's yeah. been tried numerous times, and we're already there. I was just reading the article this morning um, that they want to cap the price of energy in Europe, right? So uh, they always want to go to price fixing when they can't control the prices going up. Price fixing always leads to shortages, which leads to more prices going up. Uh, and so we understand it's a bad idea. Idea, but basically, they're setting the price of money, which sets the price of everything. So they are setting the price of everything by setting the price of money. And and the reason why that's important is that the price of money gives me all types of data. So most people don't realize that we actually buy money. So if I want to buy this house for a million bucks, I don't have a million bucks. I have to go buy the million dollars. Well, how much do I pay for a million? Well, that's the interest rate. And that interest rate tells me a lot of data. What it really tells me is are there more savers or spenders? So if there's a ton of people that have saved money, there's more people wanting to lend than there are borrowers, the rate of that money will come down. And if there's not very many savers and there's more people in borrow, the rate of the money goes up. And the reason why that's important is if I'm Mm going to go take on this loan to create this widget, um, if there's a lot of money on the sidelines to loan to me, then I know that the economy is good. I know there's lots of savers. I know there's lots of disposable income to buy my products. And so then I'll go ahead and I'll move forward with that business opportunity. Or if there was no money available to me, then I would know the economy's bad. There's no disposable income. I probably shouldn't do it. And so when you manipulate it to your point, you give away yeah. you know, trillion zero down interest. Yeah, the whole thing gets manipulated and ruined.
0: Can, can we move towards some solutions at this point? We've done a pretty good job of defining the problems and, and what's going on out there. Um, I try to, in my work, try to provide two or three solutions to every problem. Uh, these are some big globalized problems, but I think the solution often lies in individual actions. What would you tell people that are concerned about all those things we're talking about today and they're worried about owning nothing and being happy? And, you know, to, to Alex's point, like, I, I agree that long term we win. I try to teach seven generational things. I think the psychopath thinks maybe to maybe about their kids, maybe. Right. And if I get enough, then my kids will have whatever there's left when I'm dead. So maybe the longer out we think the more likely we are to win, but you can still be in the worst time in that bubble period of time where the bad guys have the advantage and you're. So when you were talking about some of this stuff, Mark, I was thinking about a friend I I have who was uh, a member of actually the KGB in Soviet Russia prior to the fall and then left afterwards. And he was also an Olympic athlete. And we were talking one time and he said, do you know why we won so many gold medals? And I said, no, and this is, pure communism as far as the government goes but the, the the philosophy of the athlete was different and it was because most people try to win in these sports we were trained to survive and if i survive long enough you'll make a mistake and then when you make a mistake then i'll win now he was particularly into he was a judo uh, uh judo athlete right so he was particularly into a combat sport where that philosophy works really well but that's kind of what i'm 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 sensing from this if we're going to have to think long term then we have to think survival as in survival of our way of life, our networks, our people, our wealth, our property long enough to sustain the failure of the system overall.
2: Yeah, I think
0: that there's, um, I, I was going to say that
2: the best solution is find a cliff and jump as soon as possible. Um, but I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, the, the, I think about it in terms of, um, Marty Benton and I were having a conversation and I think about it in terms of, the we're gonna to have to go through this period, and as you said, in the end we win. Um it's just this bubble is how bad does this bubble get? How much collateral damage and how much intellectual, social, moral, civilizational, economic capital do we burn through before we kind of reverse it, right? That that's really the question. And and I guess I, I wonder wonder one question, I'll throw this one back at you, Jack, before we um before we try and answer some solutions is if you think of a if you think of a graph so think of like um you've got an x axis um and then you've kind of got uh on the on the y axis is uh let, let's just think of the negative end how bad things can get right um so time is the x axis and y is like things getting bad and then getting good again right i kind of think of like the surface area within that curve as the total gross product of suffering, right? Um, how, how far we sort of stood down. My intuition tells me that we have two options. We can either kind of have a relatively mild transition, right? And we sort of, like, the curve doesn't go too bad. Like, we don't end up in a fucking total dystopia where we... No one owns nothing and everything. We kind of managed to reverse it, but it's kind of like milder, but it lasts a really long time. Um, and we, we make it out the other end versus a very, um, sharp drop. Um, and because the drop is like really fucking bad and extreme, the elastic band effect, like we come back out of it relatively quickly because we see how bad it actually fucking is. And there's a, there's a natural, uh, reversion to that. So you end up with a shorter time frame, but a more drastic, I guess, clown world. But the area right under, under, the curves, under the curve. Yeah, exactly. So, so, but the area under the curve might be the same on both of them. I got you. I got so you, you. you kind of get what I mean. So, so, yeah. so, I, I thro- throwing this at you is like, do you think that is the case? Like, do you think either way we've got the same area under curve? It's just up to us to choose whether we want the sharp drop or the long, or whether we,
0: sh- as intelligent individuals, should be prepared for fucking either. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, my favorite answer, everybody in my audience knows this, I've been saying it for 14 years, is it depends, right? And then I always mm-hmm. try to clarify that with what it depends upon. So I think in a lot of ways, this may depend upon where. Like, we do have, I, I'm not a rah-rah, wave-the-flag kind of guy, USA, USA, America guy, uh, grew up that way, but I've, I've since changed my opinion a little bit, but I do think we have a very unique system of solution in the United States in the form of what's a remnant of a republic where there is a lot of ability for states to conduct themselves in different ways. So if I'm going to ride this out, as much as I've thought about expatriating due to tax advantages and things like that, uh, the last few years have shown me the advantage of being able to – Like I, li- I happened to live in Texas when this started, but if I didn't, I would either be here now or in Florida. And that doesn't mean I would stay there for the rest of my life. Right. Like the entire point of that form of governance was maybe the next time something happens, the most stupid controls by government will be in those states. And maybe I would have to go somewhere else. And I as much as I homestead, and all I try to keep my life potentially mobile if absolutely necessary. And if we look at the history of the destruction of freedom in countries, the people that always did the best left before it happened or even within countries. So like the smartest thing you could have done if you didn't want to be part of the, the civil war in the United States and you lived in the South, especially like Georgia or the Carolinas would have been moved to Maine before it happened. Right. That would have mm-hmm. been the best. I mean, you could say you're a coward, you ran to Canada, like we the Vietnam veterans and stuff like that, but like that would have been tactically the best maneuver a person could have made. And so I think that having the ability to do that within your own national borders may make that a little less severe but I think you're asking about like the whole world, like the overall curve. Yeah, aggregate. Yeah, I think it's going to be, you know, let's invoke Ernest Hemingway, gradually, then suddenly, suddenly, like it may look like it's this, and then there has to be a point, and I don't know how long it is till it happens, but there has to be a cliff point. There has to be a mm. point where this artificial reality just falls apart. The fiat money system we're living in, you know, everybody says 1913, and it did start there, but the the, the current Ponzi version. Is about 52 years old right now. It started in 1971 when the finality of The Gold Window was closed. I think that's about how long you get. So exactly what it looks like, I don't know. But I think we're approaching that end. And I think a lot of this stuff that we look at and goes to evil overlords, the Dr. Evils, the Bond villains trying to take over the world. And let's be honest, Schwab, you couldn't have wrote a better Bond villain for a character, totally. right? A Including the screws, right? I swear to God. Yeah, it was, but... Is it, is it that they really do want to take over the world or is it that they don't want to lose control of the world and they're trying to cobble together something, anything to maintain control because this system is dying. And when you say system's dying, people take comfort in it. Dying beasts are dangerous. The last mm-hmm. thing you want is a lion in a corner that knows it's dead because it's going to take somebody with it when it goes. And so I don't know if that's an answer you were looking for, but I, I think we're, we have an acute pain period coming and I don't know how long it lasts. I, do you have any thoughts on that, Mark?
1: Well, I mean, if we're talking about globally, um, I would say, you know, I've done a lot of traveling. I know Alex done a lot of traveling. I, I, I'm a surfer, so I specifically go to places that are way off the beaten path with dirt roads. And I can tell you there's tons and tons and tons of places, most of the world that really that would probably not even know if the world collapsed. So um the entire system could collapse, come down, the dollar could end, the WEF could collapse, whatever, and a lot of the world wouldn't even know. Um I go to places all over Mexico and Central America that they're not plugged in with TVs and radio. Like, it w- they wouldn't skip a beat, right? They're still in the agrarian stage. Mm-hmm. Right? Um And so if we're talking globally, you know, most of the developed world wouldn't really notice. Um Obviously, in the developed world, we have the highest, we're at the highest points, we have the farthest to fall. Um, so I think it's, it's especially bad there. Um, I think, I think in the, in, in the, in the emerging markets that wouldn't really notice, some of them, there's gonna be a lot of problems. We're already seeing this happening in these tier three countries, uh, where, where famine's really gonna be a big problem. The UN's projecting almost a a billion people will starve to death over the next 24 months, like 868 million. Um, and so it's gonna be very bad. And as the dollar can continue to inflate, uh, you know, food's gonna continue to get more scarce. They're gonna have a hard problem. Um, in the developed world though, I mean, I think things get worse as far as like more censorship, more control, more loss of freedom, things like that. Um, I don't, I'm not expecting like mass starvation to happen inside in in Europe and the United States. So, uh, it's, it would get bad as far as loss of freedom. Um, and I think that's going to accelerate probably over the next couple of years would be my guess. Um, I think, you know, all of us see the inevitability of the of the collapse of the system. And to your point, you know, if it's fifty years old or however old do you want to call it, a hundred years old, the system is dying. Now, how long how much longer can it go for? I mean, people have been calling for it to collapse for a decade. People have been collapse people have been calling for it to collapse since it started in nineteen in nineteen seventy one, right? So yeah. um we can see that the time is getting shorter, 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 but is it two years, is it twenty years? We don't really know. Uh my guess is I, I talk about it all the time, it's it's a process um, and, and not an event. So it's a process, not an event, right? And so, uh, when the U.S. took over, uh, superpower and the reserve currency from the pound sterling, and that was about a 40 year process. Mm-hmm. And so we're witnessing it. We're, we're seeing it happen and we can see all the signposts happening. Um, we can see that, uh, you know, now there's moving to this multipolar world where we have these BRICS nations, which now with Iran, Argentina joining the BRICS make up now 50% of the people in the world now are under BRICS. the BRICS. And more importantly, they control 60% of the gold production. Um, you know, now they're creating their own uh, payment network, their own currency, and even a competitor to the London Bullion Market Association, the LBMA, which could break the grip of uh, manipulation on the price of gold. So, you know, now we're seeing things kind of come to a head. Um, you know, the all the developed world, they're in a very dangerous situation where uh, right now the Fed, so right now with the with the CPI print yesterday, I mean, if we want to jump to like a macro picture and kind of see what's going on with, with, the, with the CPI print yesterday, Um, was much hotter than anybody expected. As a matter of fact, 47 out of 50 economists, uh, that work for the Fed had said it would be less than it was. So everyone's caught off guard. This is going to cause an emergency rate increase, probably a hundred basis points on the next one. We're probably going to end up over four and a half percent, uh, at the Fed funds rate, which then turns into be about a trillion and a half dollars per year is owed just as interest on the national debt. Now, to put that in terms, that's about 40% of the tax receipts that the government brings in. So 40% of the tax receipts go just to the interest, not including any entitlements, whatever. But the problem is the Fed is hell-bent on crushing demand. So when the prices are too high, you have two levers, right? You can add more supply or you can lower demand. And so they're hell bent on crushing demand. So they want to crush the economy, crush your retirement account, crush your real estate. So then that lowers the demand. You buy less stuff. But the problem is when you buy less stuff, 70% of the GDP that you talked about had to always be growing, 70% of the GDP comes from consumer spending. Correct. So at a time when 40% of the, of the tax receipts are going to be paying just the, just, just the interest alone, but now the tax receipts are going to plummet through.
0: Correct. Forever.
1: So now we're in a situation where now what do you do? So we're only speeding up the inevitable. Um, yeah. I think this, I think this speeding up is going to bring it to a head. And, you know, I expect
0: some big fireworks and big cracks to happen. Here's a crazy theory I have as to how they try to mitigate this. Everybody's talking about CBDCs. I see a, a, an alternative to that. And I'm not saying this is good. I'm just saying this would be the play. So we have these uh, instruments like Tether, right, and, and TUSD and things like that. And there's been talk of bringing them in under FDIC. So imagine that you, coming from the Fed, coming from the SEC, et cetera, decide that's what you're going to do. And you say, we are going to say, if you want to create a stable coin, you have to exist under FDIC. And you have to insure depositors up to a quarter million dollars. And now you have people all over the world with their current, as bad as our currency is, their currency is worth worse. And with a little box, they can hold and transact in U.S. dollars. And then the, pl- I'm not saying it would work. This would be the play. Well, it, we- it's already working. We globalize yeah. the dollar through the synthetic dollars. Even with this massive quantity we've created, we spread out the dollar across most of the world, because if you're in some third world country right now and you can hold US dollars, you're probably going to do so. And if you could do so under a ten default legitimacy of the state, right? And this this fascist, this neo fascist organization of the Federal Reserve and the government and the corporatocracy all working together, then you could spread and you maybe you stave this off in their minds anyway for a time. And I've been told I'm absolutely crazy for that belief they're just going to do a CBC and track everything we do. And I'm like, well, you could do this and track everything we do at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll pick the easiest method of doing it. You know, whether that's using a, you know, a, a dollar stable coin, whether it's partnering with Ethereum to create a new one, whatever the case is, you know, that they're, they're in a position where they, they need to look for, um, look for solutions, To try and salvage the clusterfuck because, like, (laughs) it's it's a disaster. So so yeah. So at at this point, I I wouldn't be surprised at anything. Um, But yeah, once again, I mean, coming back to your other question, like for this last couple minutes, um, I think the solutions we all know what the fucking solutions are. It's just a matter of um, actually working towards them. I think a lot of us have heard, you know, buy Bitcoin get some meat, build some relationships with, you know, community people, get yourself a fucking embassy, think about privacy, coin join you your coins, cold store the shit, like all the stuff, right? Like go and learn some other skills, learn to protect yourself, get some ammunition, et cetera. Like, I think we all know that. Um, You know, I, I guess my, my call to action is for people to like, actually go and fucking do it and quit talking about it and sitting there watching podcasts about it. Like, Go and actually do it, um, and take take some steps towards it. Like you, you don't have to have everything; it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, but you know, start start putting yourself in a situation where either you're really really light, and you can move quickly, or you dig yourself in somewhere, um, and you have all of the shit that you need. Um, so that you can hunker down, because maybe coming back to your thing about um, what you said about the Soviet athletes, you know, now, now maybe we need to take a leaf out of their book and survive long enough for the clusterfuck to collapse, um, and we come out the other end.
0: Mark, how are how are you setting your life up? I mean, you seem pretty clear on what's going on. You think forward, you see how this could impact your life. What are what is your advice to people? Uh,
1: so. I think the first thing people have to figure out is like where they're at, where they're trying to go kind of a thing. We're all in different places. We're all trying to go different places. We all have different modes of of transportation. So I have more money. I have less money. I'm older. I'm younger. I want to go here. You want to go, right? We're all different. So you got to, first you got to kind of figure out. I, I, uh, at my place in Texas, I have this, uh, ex-Navy SEAL author, uh, Clay Martin. He's helping me set up like some gun ranges, tactical stuff. And uh, he, the first thing he asked me is he said, what do you think is going to happen and what do you want to be prepared for? Because based off of that, then I can give you a plan for that, right? So that's the first thing you have to figure out. What do I think is going to happen and what do I want to prepare for so you can make a plan? So we all we all have different visions of this. In my vision, uh, what I think is happening is, uh, as as I've already kind of alluded to, I, I see more uh, squeezing by the government, more loss of freedom. I think that's going to continue. This dying beast is going to continue to squeeze to try to hang on to power. The more they squeeze, the more people push back. So times are going to get very volatile. We're already seeing this all over the world. So if you're paying Attention not to mainstream media, but like on Twitter, for example, you can see nations around the world are erupting. I mean, millions of people are marching all over the world. So, the more they squeeze, the more it's pushing back. Um, I think, um, it's inevitable what's going to happen, as we said, right? The, the, the situation with the, with the fiat currencies, um, they're in a really, really dangerous situation. And so, at this point, anything they do is going to speed up the demise. I think most likely you know the the most probable case, I guess specifically for people in the United States, uh, I think there 's probably a pretty pretty good sized correction uh, crash coming to asset prices, um, and I say the asset prices in uh, quotation marks because. The the inflation, the CPI, the inflation, the Biden administration and the Fed, Federal reserves, what they say committed to bringing down, that's consumer prices. They don't consider your stocks and your real estate, your assets. They don't consider that into the CPI. So they can crush assets. But prices, CPI could still be going up at the same time, which is what I expect to happen. So uh, they're committed to bringing down inflation by crushing asset prices. I would expect that they're going to do so, and asset prices will continue to crash. Probably another big crash from here. Um, maybe this goes on somewhere in the next like six six months to uh, you know maybe a couple years. What we've seen is that each crash has lasted lo- less and less and less because the Fed is more willing to intervene, and so we saw. You know, in 2008, it took like a, almost uh, six years for the market to get back to its previous all time high. Uh, I think this time, you know, maybe it's two, three years. So maybe there's a two, three year kind of period that we see this big asset drawdown. At that point, the Fed will be forced, I think all the central banks will be forced to inflate their way out of this. No nation with a money printer has ever defaulted on their debt. It just won't happen. You're going to print your way out of it. But I think people need to understand that there's two types of busts. So most people just think about this deflationary bust where everything just goes to zero and I have no money. I can't afford to live. But there's also an inflationary bust. And so that means that they print so much money that the prices of things go up so much that I still can't afford to live. So in Zimbabwe, for example, not ancient news. We're just talking about in uh, 2000. So not that far ago. um, It was three hundred and fifty billion dollars for one egg. Everybody was a billionaire. But you couldn't afford to live. So there's an inflationary bust or a deflationary bust. I think we'll go into an inflationary bust. Uh, so I think we'll see, you know, asset prices, uh, cost of goods, everything goes up. And so what you really want to be thinking about is your cost, your, your purchasing power. And so you need to, you need to maintain your purchasing power and you need to at least keep up with, if not beat that rising water, right? So you're trying to keep your head above water, but it's going up so fast. So you don't want to end up being a billionaire and still not being able to afford an egg. And so, uh, for me, you know, my game plan is: um, I think we're going to continue to see markets going down. It's not uh, a contrarian bet to say that the Fed tells you just as much. Uh, Jerome Powell said yesterday that he's committed to bringing down inflation. Well, I don't think they're going to be able to, uh, so I think it's a losing battle. But they're going to—they're going to try. So they're going—we're going to see asset prices come down. I'm I'm pretty heavy in cash right now. I'm not redeploying any capital right now. I'm not selling any of my Bitcoin, um, but I'm not redeploying it. So I'm trying to build those cash positions. Uh, cash is trash, sure. But uh, for short periods of time, always ask the question over what time frame. So I think over the next six to 12 months, cash is a pretty good situation, a pretty good place to be. Uh, we'll wait until uh, probably I'm looking at the credit markets, so the bond markets, so like a high yield and investment grade debt. I'm looking at the commodities, specifically industrial metals like copper. Um, and then I'll be looking at the stocks. And so when those three things, when when industrial metals and the uh, bond markets bottom, that'll probably give us a signal that the Fed's going to pivot. Uh, and at that point, then it's trying to go back in and try to keep your head up with that rising water, which is going to be very difficult. So for example... Um, if I bought if if I if I was gonna buy a home five years ago for a hundred thousand dollars, but I decided not to buy that home. Well, today it now costs me five hundred thousand dollars. Well, I can't afford to get in at five hundred thousand. But if I would have bought at a hundred and ridden it all the way up to five hundred, when I sell that home for five hundred, I can only just go buy another home for five hundred. So I didn't get ahead. All I did was keep up with it. So you want to keep up, but you want to beat it. And so you want the assets that will do that. So one, uh I like leverage. Leverage is dangerous. I think of leverage like a fire. It can warm your house or it can burn it down. But like back to real estate, if I can get a low interest rate loan, even today at 5% is still amazing low when inflation is yeah. well over 10%. Um, not for the CPI numbers, but uh, I think it's 17%, 20% most likely. Um, it, but if I can lock in low interest rate debt, that gives me that leverage that I need to try to keep up ahead of on that. I think other assets, obviously Bitcoin, I think will have this massive run. We can see how exponential those returns get when it when it starts moving back up again. And so you want to start thinking about, one, protecting yourself right now. Cash positions are good. Uh, reduce your exposure. Uh, we have massive uncertainty and volatility, at least in the next couple months to the election, but probably over the next year. Um, and then at that point, you're going to want to get back in and ride it back up, but try to think about beating inflation and not just keeping your head above water.
0: No, I agree with that. And I've always said like the cost of capital is the opportunity rent that you pay, basically. So if I'm holding cash... During an inflationary period, and I know it's going to be devalued over a particular period of time. I'm staying in that cash and I'm paying that fee so that I have the opportunity on the other side of the cycle where if I ca- tied that capital up in that point and it declined with it, now I'm stuck and I'm I've stra- That capital is now stranded capital and I can't recoup that capital. It's too expensive to recoup. Sometimes maybe even have to bite the bullet and do it because then you get into the sunken cost fallacy, but it's, it's a fallacy, but it's a real effect that I now have. I've lost that opportunity. So if I know that capital is going to be devalued by 20%, do do I still have a greater than 20% opportunity on the other uh, side of it? And then something you said that I've been talking about a lot recently is these people losing their mind over 5 to 6% mortgages. Most of my adult life, that was considered a good mortgage rate. When I bought my first home, I think I paid like five eight or something like that. Inflation was a lot less than it is now. Nobody said that was a bad interest rate to get on a mortgage. Now we're going back to like late 90s here. Um, but yeah, General, I mean, the fact that we look at things like that and we think it's bad, that tells us where we are. Totally. Gents, I've got to run. I had a hard
2: stop about a minute ago. So okay. thank you so much, Jack, for having me on. Mark, I'll let you take over. Um Really
0: appreciate it. Chat to you soon. Thanks, guys. Alex. We'll make sure Mark pushes your book for you good. Yeah.
1: yeah uh, I I had budgeted an hour and now we're well into an hour and a yes. half. So I, I got to yes. wrap it up as well. I got a big day ahead of me. Um, gonna but, get a uh, on the book. but yeah, get, get the book, the uncommonist manifesto. Check it out. It's uh, not a big overwhelming book. It's more of a booklet. We think that some of the best books in history are booklets short and concise. The original communist manifesto was only seventy or eight or 8,000 words. Um, other great books like uh, Frederick Bastiat's The Law or Rothbard's Anatomy of the State. They're booklets so you can read this in about an hour and a half probably um, so it's not overwhelming um, and I think you can get a couple good ideas. More importantly, I think it breaks it down to what we would consider like a first principles level so you can understand things at the most basic so then you can start to formulate and build your own ideas on top of it um, so that's the plug for the book.
0: Outstanding. Again, good. yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us, Mark. I really appreciate you joining uh, Alex and myself. I considered a huge bonus when he mentioned that you could be here today. Uh, You want to maybe throw out a plug for your own work, though, here before we wrap up.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I I put out a ton of content. Uh, um, you can just go to uh, onemarkmoss.com, onemarkmoss.com, and you can find everything. But uh, I put out a couple of three videos a week on my YouTube channel. Just search Mark Moss. I have a nationally syndicated radio show. You can just search Mark Moss Radio. I got a podcast. You can find it on any of your podcast players, iTunes, iHeart, etc. Just search Mark Moss on there. Or like I said, just go to onemarkmoss.com, and then I have everything linked right there. But I put out a couple of videos a week that are videos on YouTube where they're like on my whiteboard, and I have... like. Uh, what I call the receipts. So I got charts and graphs and headlines and stuff that I bring in. Um, so definitely check that out.
0: Appreciate it. I'll make sure that I have uh, all of that information, including Alex stuff, Mark stuff. Uh, links, Twitter connections, all that in the uh, show notes for the podcast. There's a link in the video notes below right now if you're on the live feed, about one after, hour after we close down right here. Uh, that will be available on the audio side and on my site, and you'll be able to get all of those links, download the episode. Remember, check us out on Fountain FM. And, again, Mark, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. Well, guys, I really did enjoy that discussion. I hope you did as well. Now is the time I want to remind you some of the ways that you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Uh, The easiest, like, painless way to do it, it don't ever cost you any money that you weren't going to spend anyway, is just start your online shopping by going to tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there, you see all my reviews on Amazon. You know if it's there, I own it. I bought it, I'd buy it again, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. That's the integrity that I run my, my affiliate program with. Um, but even if you buy something that's not listed there, as long as you start your shop in there, you help us in the work that we do. I don't have a, a new item of the day for you. I'm just rerunning the one I had from yesterday because it is still on sale. And it is just the coolest little product you'll ever find for 7 bucks. And, in fact, $6.77. Who says inflation's hit everything? Not everything. It's 52% off. It's the King Cooker. 12-slot leg and wing grill rack for poultry. It does wings really cool, but what I think it does best is drumsticks. And if you can read my write-up on it, just go to survivalpodcast.com start scrolling, and you'll find it if it's any time uh, near this podcast going out. If you're listening to it in the future, you want to see if it's still on sale, check it out, see what I'm talking about. Just search on thesurvivalpodcast.com for Cooker, K-O-O-K-E-R, or go to t Spaz and look under the, the kitchen tools and things like that, and you'll find it. It's a little wire rack. You, you hang the, the, the wings or the legs from it, and it just does a fantastic job. I won't belabor it since I talked about it yesterday, but I give away a bunch of recipes and procedures. Procedures and things like that Uh, I gave away a keto version of chicken and rice With a Jamaican jerk chicken yesterday You can listen to yesterday's show if you want to That was fantastic And man, there's just so much you can do with this little tool And in the words of one of my best friends this thing is freaking magic in what it does and enable you to cook poultry like you just can't do it any other way. Uh, also, I want to remind you guys, you can always support the show by becoming a member of the MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. When you do that, you'll see all the places that give you discounts. If you look at them and say, I can use that one, that one, that one, if you get that far, it's almost inevitable that the discounts pay for your membership. Some of them, like the discounts we get on certain CBD products or the discount on Start9, or the discount on ButcherBox, some of them like that. Like one of them covers it perpetually or for multiple years. And that way, for about $0.18 an episode, you can support the show and and, and you get your money back. It is a positive win-win-win scenario. I set it up that way. That's the business models I like where everybody involved wins. I win. Because I make enough money, honest to God, to be able to do this show. Without that MSB income, I can't do this show every day. It's impossible. Number two, you win because you get your money back. Number three, the supporting vendors get what's called incremental revenue. The most important revenue a business can generate is incremental revenue. That is money they would not have had otherwise. It's like a guaranteed form of advertising for them. They only pay for what they get through discounts, and they run their program their way. And if they screw up, I get rid of them. It's real simple, and we all win together. So if you're not a member yet, consider becoming a member. And then last today, I want to announce something. Big, big deal today. Today is the official day of the announcement of the Survival Podcast Workshop for TSP Fall 22. We are doing it again. Workshop at 9 Mile Farm. I have an article out today. It'll go out the Daily Mail. It already went out on social media. Uh, And I just want to tell you some of the stuff that's going to be going on. I will personally be leading a food forest chop-and-drop workshop. Instead of just walking through the food forest like we normally do, we're actually going to throw down some seed. We're going to put down some mulch. We're going to chop and drop as much as time allows for. What doesn't get done doesn't get done. But it'll probably be me and Nick and Jr. standing around going, don't cut that, don't cut that. But it'll be fun, and it'll be about a two-hour session. And included in that two hours, we're also going to put some, if not all, of my four main garden beds to bed for the winter. So you've heard me talk about it. I'm not going to do a winter garden this year. I'm using this as a rebuilding year with the bad year we had this year. We're going we're gonna to fortify. We're going to put down uh, compost. We're going to put down mulch, and we're going to tarp everything. You're going to see exactly how I do that, exactly what I'm talking about. Billy Bond will be talking about feeding your livestock off of waste streams and making the best compost in the world. Nick Ferguson will basically be teaching apocalypse-proof. Feed for your livestock through fodder systems and other means. Nicole Sauce will be presenting on food preservation for everyone, including the ultra-busy. Tim Karaoke Nye will be showing you how to provide security and automation on your homestead without the cloud. No spying by big tech on when you're trying to secure your property. Tim Toolman Cook. We'll be showing a few homestead projects that you can do that he's designed in his workshop for th- this. Joel Riles will be presented on, on dogs. Now, some of you have seen Joel before. Like, well, I've seen Joel before. And Joel's presented on, basically, protection dogs, which is what he specializes in. I wanted him to do something more broad, so I asked him. He's going to be doing two sessions. By the way, Nick Ferguson and Billy Bond are both doing two sessions. You're getting a deep dive intellectually this time around. Uh, but Joel's going to present first on core canine obedience. How to have a dog that actually does what you want the dog to do, even if you don't need it to ever bite nobody. In fact, if you don't want it to bite nobody ever, how to do that? And then he's going to go on his second session a, a day later, and he's going to talk about homestead dogs. How do we take this core obedience and translate it into a dog that doesn't kill a chicken? How do we make it a dog that is defensive of the homestead but has an off switch? How do we make it a dog that perhaps if you can't find your kids, you say, where is Timmy? And instead of Timmy being stuck in the well, he's just off playing games somewhere and doesn't hear you yelling, and the dog goes and finds Timmy. That kind of thing. So Joel is the guy to hear from that. Dr. Ken Berry, are you not entertained? Dr. Ken Berry will be here presenting on the proper human diet. John Pugliano will be doing a presentation where he'll, among other things, answer the question, recession in 2023 or something else. I'll be doing a presentation. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. You'll have to be here to find out, but it's to prime Ken Berry's presentation. This is going to be awesome. But wait, there's more. Do you know that at any given workshop, more than 60% of our students have been here before and come back? They come back every year, and there's a reason. Some people have been here 12, 13 times. There's a reason, because it's a special thing. This year, some of our food, I, I kind of felt like we let it slip a little bit last year. Some other things we let slip. That's why the price is going up and the student headcount's going down. But Dorothy and I came up with two amazing home-cooked meals. I'll be putting out a video later today or tomorrow on one of the things that we're doing for that. But they're going to blow you away, and they're keto. And you won't even know they're keto except we told you. Um, we're also going to have, like we've been doing the last few years, and I've loved doing it, Uncle Julio's is this amazing local restaurant. They're going to come out and pit cook fajita, uh, chicken and beef fajitas on Friday night. That gives my kitchen staff a bit of a break that night so that we can get barter blanket kicked off, which is awesome. Like usual on Saturday, I have sausage coming from Chef Tim Love. This dude's famous, for real. Go Google him, Tim Love. His personally prepared sausage will be served here, elk and beehive cheddar and rattlesnake and rabbit sausage. But in addition to that this year, instead of outsourcing the brisket, I've come up with a 24-hour sous vide reverse smoke brisket that I'm personally preparing for that. So that's going to be there. We're also going to have a bunch of other surprises. We'll have Booze Circle Tasting, like always, karaoke, barter blanket, best coffee in the world from Nicole sauce. Uh This is going to be as good as any we've ever done. And this is the big thing. It is going to go on sale. Saturday, September 24th at 9.30 in the morning Central Standard Time. And the way I'm going to do it is what I've been doing the last few years It's worked really well. At 9.30 on the TSP Telegram channel, which means it'll go in the group too, I'm going to take the link that you're not able to see yet that's not public and I'm going to go Control-V and I'm going to drop it. It's a race. Remember the movie Rat Race? It's a race. I am winning, right? It's a race. 50 tickets will sell out in minutes. If by some amazing unprecedented thing it goes 10 minutes I'll put it live on the site it's not going to happen last year we sold out 65 tickets in two minutes and there were people mad at me because they filled out the form but then they couldn't pay because the tickets were gone I'm sorry I can only shut it off so fast right so this is gonna sell out that means if you I don't like telegram you need to like telegram for this. You need to get the Telegram channel minimum. You don't have to be in the group if you don't want to. You need to get the Telegram channel installed. Once you are a registered student, there's two things you're going to get. One is that you're going to get two other Telegram uh, links in your, in, in your student packet. These are kind of important. One is a channel for announcements at the event. Dinner's been changed. The speaker's going now. Stuff like that. It really is a good idea to get on it. There's another one, though. There's a very small Telegram group made up of alumni of TSP workshops. I think there's about 120 members on it. These are people that are core members of the community. They don't necessarily communicate on the other uh, channels or other groups or on other social media outlets anywhere near with the frequency they do there. And even if you don't communicate a lot, you're tied in to kind of a private club. That's part of that, that doesn't happen until you become a book student here at one of the workshops. And we'll even tell you a talk to the squirrel meets. I have a video from a couple of years ago that I have built into the write up on it, teaches you about barter blanket. Don't miss it if you want to come. People think, because I'm a good marketer, that I say all this stuff to market it. In the very beginning, I kind of did when we first started doing these. When it used to take an hour and a half to two hours to sell out, I wanted to market. I want to make sure we did sell out. I want to make sure it was worth doing. Over the years, as we've built up a huge clientele of people who want to come back again because we do it right, that has changed. I tell people not to miss the sign-up period and to do things in the way where you get the best chance of signing up because if you want to come, I want you to have an actual chance. Last year not only did I sell out in about two minutes, I had a wait list of over forty people. And I do want to tell you one more thing. I'm really not in to wanting to do that anymore. It's a, it's inevitable. If if you if you have to can like you do it and then something goes crazy and you have to cancel within two weeks of, of signing up, it's easy for me to sell your ticket at that point I have the time to do it. After two weeks, unless it's like you had death in a family or something, I'm not the airlines. I will I will certainly uh, take care of you if that happens. After two weeks, what I ask you to do is simply get in get in the telegram group and say, hey, does anybody that doesn't have a ticket want a ticket? Because inevitably I have people that I'm like two weeks out from the event and they're wanting a refund. I, I can't do it. I, I build the event to the attendance, so that's the policy going forward. I think it's very fair, and I haven't had anybody. Who has tried to sell their ticket? Failed to sell their ticket, unless they were doing like a day or two before. And I, I think that there's, you know, what's reasonable and what's not. And again, I've had people with things like I got COVID, uh, I had death in the family, and I always, always do that. So I don't think I'm being heartless, but it's just like I can't come because I don't know. I I have a job interview or something. I at that point the course is set. I hope that's understandable. Uh, Again, read the announcement if you want to come set two alarms, be early, be ready, and I'm just going to say, if you don't make it, please don't be mad at me. I know I'm going to have to tell some of y'all that are personal friends no this year, and I don't don't like it at all. but I do have limits, and I have to do this right for everybody. So if you came last year and you're like, you know, that meatball lunch wasn't quite what I really expect from Jack, that's one of the things that slipped, and that's what we're making sure doesn't slip. And on that, to be able to make sure everything is right, our workshops are normally 500 bucks, and that's, that's three full days, and it's really a half-day Wednesday for when people show up to camp and all. We have a pretty great Wednesday night reception. Um, it's a deal. It's a deal. It's 600 bucks instead of 500 bucks now. Uh, deposit will be $200, so that you have that capital allocated. Again, the 24th is when they go on sale, 9.30 Central Standard Time. The actual dates of the workshop, this will never change the week of the 11th of November. And it will be Wednesday through Sunday, the week of the 11th through November. This year, that falls from November 9th through 13th with the big active you know, workshop dates 10, 11, and 12. With that's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast hoping you, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times to get tough, or even if they don't. You pull yourself up They keep bringing you down Are they going to bail you out Or just run you around